0: Hello business builders. Welcome to the zero to 5,000 podcast where we interview founders of America's fastest growing companies. Our mission is to arm you with the tools and the confidence to scale your own venture. So to that end, every now and then we gladly welcome a non-founder leader, thinker, or influencer to help you do just that. I'm Drew McClure. My co-host is Jordan Mitchell and we hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, Michael, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast today. Dude, thanks for having me, man. Yes, I've been so excited about this uh, for months now. I actually saw uh, your talk from a friend of mine, your TED talk, that was incredible as we were putting together the list of people that we wanted to target specifically for this podcast, and I immediately texted my team and said, we got to add this guy to the list. Uh, his, his, it's not just your talk, but it was the substance of it, um, of the journey you've been through and how that translated into business, I thought was just brilliant. And so where I'd love to start, uh, really from your own mission statement, from your website, uh, it states that your mission is to share the secret of what all addicts know with the world. Hopefully I didn't botch that share the secret that all addicts know with the world. Um, and I want to start there. What in the world does that mean? What is the secret that all addicts know? So, um, the secret
1: that all addicts know. So for, uh, you know, um, this is actually, today's the day that my book comes out and, and I get so much crap for the title of the book, um, just like I did for the TED talk, because uh, it's great leaders live like drug addicts. And so I find myself immediately having to like explain what the heck am I trying to say? Yes. And so when, when I make the statement that great leaders live like drug addicts, what I mean is it's in a double entendre. And so when I look at the leaders that are considered great in our past, I see people that to me look like addicts in active addiction. They are fixing, they're managing, they're controlling perception by any means necessary in order to get what they want. Mm. And when I think about what I believe the great leaders in our future will look like, I think they'll lead in a fundamentally different way. I think they'll live truly authentically or what I call mask free and not hide themselves at all. And the people, there is only one segment of our society that has been equipped with a specific system and a specific process to live, quote unquote, mask free. And that is recovering addicts. And so in order to be a drug addict, you have to be an expert at wearing masks. Mm. And the only difference between you and the leader is you're wearing it to get the next high. The leader's wearing it to get the next success. By the way, it totally pays better to be a leader than a drug addict. Um, And then when I'm talking about recovering addicts, it's living mask free, leading mask free. And in order to live as a recovering addict, when I got into recovery, I was taught that I had to take all the masks off, but I wasn't just told, hey, take them off. I was actually equipped with a system to do that. And so when I say the the secret that all drug addicts know, we're talking about what we learn in recovery that saves our life that actually puts us in a position to do what most of the quote unquote great leaders in this world can't do.
0: Come on. Okay, so just to make it clear, that that at first uh, was the first dichotomy uh, that I had to understand when I watched your talk. It was, you know, I thought you were going to be explaining what drug addicts do uh, in a positive way, almost like take the negative over here and apply it in positive over here. But what you just articulated was no people on active addiction act very similar to people who are in a different kind of addiction that we call life, business, social media, whatever. And it's equally painful, traps you in similar ways. And that freedom looks similar to the business person, to the parent, to the person that it does to the addict. And so I want to just go back to your story. Um, And again, I know this, the whole talk could be on your, This conversation could be on your story, but fast forward a little bit. You obviously uh, fell into an addiction and uh, tell us just a little bit about that and how you got to the place of first discovering what the path forward looked like, you know, how you were going to actually stay clean um, in the midst of feeling like an addict
1: so at the end of my addiction, I'd been kicked out of college. I've been kicked out of my job, kicked out of my house. My car had been repossessed. I was throwing up blood all at the age of 23. I didn't think that I would see my 30th birthday Mm. and I ran out of options for places to stay and I didn't want to live on the street. And my parents had been offering to send me to rehab for a long time. And I kept telling them I didn't have a problem. And yet, um, I was sleeping on my buddy's couch and I was stealing from him during the day eating his food, drinking his liquor, inviting strangers over to his house, you know, wearing out my welcome. And so I knew I needed somewhere to stay. So I said, yes. And I said, yes, because I was out of options. But in the back of my mind, I also knew that I was on a path to just death. Mm. And so I was kind of open to trying to find a different way. I just hadn't been able to find on my own. So when I got into rehab, one of the first things they told me was the masks that you wear to perpetuate your addiction have to go. And the thing is, is that I think that's actually similar to how leaders are taught, you have to be authentic. You got to be authentic. People want authentic brands and products and companies and leaders, but we don't have authentic brands and companies and leaders. When was the last time you heard a politician answer a question with, I don't know? We don't have that. So the, the reason that an addict needs more than just take off the mask is the same reason that a leader needs more than just take off the mask what I had to understand was I, it was an involuntary addiction. And I think that leaders are addicted to mass as well. But when I go back to that moment in rehab, one of the things that I see that I got as a drug addict that leaders do not get is a keen understanding that you can tell an addict to stop doing something until you are blue in the face and they will not stop. That's why it's an addiction. Mm. We don't stop using until you tell us something to start instead. And instead of just saying, take off your masks, they gave me a step-by-step process that was created 80 years ago that allows anyone in any income bracket, in any education level, in any language, in any city, in any country, in the world, millions of people can work this step-by-step process. They don't need to be special and they can get the value proposition of stop slamming dope every day and start living clean and living mask-free. And so I was equipped with this system and then for me, you know, I won't go into everything. I'm sure you'll prompt me. But um, it it became the way that I was able to survive. But long term, it became how I thrived, and I was able to convert that system into my leadership philosophy that I have today.
0: Well, this is, yeah, this has been something that's fascinated me for years. So for almost a decade, I was in ministry as a as a pastor, and I had I, I remember commenting to people all the time that I had never seen life change like I had coming out of twelve step programs, and not just not just getting clean, but that, that in itself, like just the general ability to break a habit, much less yep. break an addiction seems to be a small percentage of the population, but something just, you know, percentage wise was really startling and how effective the 12 step program is. And I'd love to hear from your point of view, why is it effective? Like how does that start to disentangle? Maybe your being wrapped around uh, uh, what you think is a solution. Like how, I don't know anyone to set it up more than that. Like, why do you think it's so effective?
1: So I think, and you actually just kind of keyed in on one of the, one of the reasons it's so effective is um, in order to stop using, we basically work on everything other than using. You have to change everything about you. Um, and so the reason that the book is called um, Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts, my t- so my TED Talk, let's take a step back. My TED Talk was Great Leaders Do What Drug Addicts Do. And the reason that I changed the title was because as I started to really understand what what this secret was and why it was so effective, I can't just tell leaders, hey, use this trick. I'm Patrick Lencioni, um, who I love by the way, I worship. But here's a great story and some principles just go do it. Mm. Um, In order to live and lead mask free, you have to live mask free. You can't just say, I'm going to lead mass free because what ends up happening is it's a way of life. It's a process that you commit to, to change your inner world before you ever try to impact your external world. And so for addicts, instead of us just getting um, a trick where it says, you know, stop, stop drinking, stop using dope, whatever. We are taught how to fundamentally transform the way that we look at the world Mm. and the way that we live. And then we are given a program in 12 step programs specifically, but all other programs have very similar things that where there are three legs to the stool. There's a system, a language, a framework in which we all deal with the issues at hand. So those are the issues at hand. So that's the 12 steps that were created back in the 1930s. But if the steps alone were sufficient to create change, we would just hand the book to addicts and say, good luck. The reason that you have a sponsor, and that's the second leg of the stool is you need a guide and a lot like what you guys do for founders in your business, right? You need a right. guide, you need a coach, you need a mentor or whatever, but actually a sponsor is a little bit different than a mentor and a coach. So we can talk about a different time, but you need a guide because what that does is that guide, um, especially in 12 step programs is not someone who says I'm an expert on you or I'm an expert on what needs to happen. They say, I've worked this system and let me just share my experience with you. And the system remains the, the expert that does the change. And, the, and the, the sponsor is just sharing their experience, working the system, which makes them infinitely more accessible than a tra- traditional leader. And then the third leg of the stool is a society. And that's why we go to meetings. My wife, when I mm. uh, met her, I had 12 years clean, um, coming up on 18 years now. And uh, she was like, why do you still go to meetings? I was like, because I want to stay clean. <laughs> like It's yeah. not as simple as uh, there's no recovered. And and the reason that the meetings or a society is so important is, it's not just a group of like-minded people. It's a group of people that are working the exact same system with their own sponsor and they become a sponsor. So that means everybody's dedicated to the lens through which they look at the world. And that's why when I was in a Fortune 50 company, in a call center surrounded by a bunch of people that looked like me. I felt not safe being my true self because we were all using a different language. But I could go to a 12 step meeting in the middle of the hood in a state that i would never been to before. Go into a meeting where I'm the only white face out of 50 say I'm Mike. I'm a drug addict. I'm struggling with step one and know that I'm accepted and loved and safe and that I am like everybody there and that I'm going to hear my story come out of someone else's mouth. Mm. It's all three of those legs of the stool working together that transform how you live. And then the byproduct of that is we stop using drugs.
0: Mm. Man, and that's that to me, I wanna to just touch on that third leg for a second. And then uh, Jordan, I can see you have a question to follow that up with. Uh, but any if time I've been in a place where I confessed something, if we wanna use that language, right? Like we yeah. get something off your chest where you're like, man, I've been hiding this or I screwed up and I face it. Uh, and it's met in some kind of graciousness or with some love or whatever, you have this feeling of like, Oh God, I wish I had done this sooner. And almost like the reason for doing the thing kind of even goes away, you know? Yep. Um, uh, and that's what always made sense to me in my head it was like, this is ideal. in the sense of like people just really showing up and be like, me too, me too, man. And I'm here for you. Right. Um, what does that do internally? Cause we've always traditionally thought about drugs just in terms of chemicals. Right. And maybe something being off, and then we just need to cut off the chemicals, or we need to separate them from the drug. But you know, I've seen interesting talks on on really not understanding the isolation, and often we isolate drug addicts through prison or whatever, and it makes makes things worse. Versus something like twelve step actually does the opposite of giving you community, of giving you belonging, giving you purpose, and that that does something to maybe the the root. And I don't want to oversimplify it, but like, do you think there's some common roots to addictive? tendencies and again, not just drugs, maybe it's success, maybe it's sex, maybe it's money, but the kinds of things we get addicted to is it is around loneliness. Is, what, what do you think?
1: So I'm definitely going to speak from my experience. Cause I think there's a lot of schools of thought on this, but, um, just as, as a, as a way to kind of set the tone. When I was growing up, we were told that, uh, that weed was a gateway drug. And I, I don't believe that personally. Um, but what I do believe is we now are all high on the universal gateway drug and it is a device in our pocket. Mm. Any instrument that I can use to affect the way that I feel. Cause when you get on the phone and you start checking it, you can numb out pretty quick. Anybody yep. ever get uh, bored or nervous or scared and they just start messing with their phone. Um, anything that allows us to manipulate the way that we feel, is, is something that we can become addicted to. And I think that addicts, um, I think we all have some level of addiction to something and, and, and the better things are like, let's say uh, success and exercise, crack is not a very good thing. You don't wanna be addicted to crack. Um, I know plenty of people that can attest to that that are my friends. Um, but the thing is, is that when I think about addicts specifically, we're a little extreme. I think that, and this is not a scientific assumption, but I believe that we suffer from uh, a variant of obsessive compulsive disorder, except our obsession is with being able to predict how we feel, and we will actually choose consistent, predictable negative feelings over variable potential for positive feelings. I totally and agree. And I think that's actually similar to what leaders experience. Not to you know continue to draw the parallels, but that's my whole jam. When we are hiding behind the mask, we get to control what we're going to feel. Like no leader wants to go to their team and be like, "Man, pandemic hit." I have no idea what to do because the fear that comes in right after that is a leader doesn't do that. Oh my God, they won't follow me. Oh my God, they won't trust me. Oh my God, they're going to quit. Oh my God, this, oh my God, whatever. When all you're doing is articulating everything that they're thinking and feeling, which actually gives you trust, gives you connection, gives you credibility. And then it's all about what happens next. Next, And that's, do you lead yourself? Do you lean into the uncomfortable work? Do you learn how to surrender the outcome? Do you actually practice rigorous authenticity? And we'll get to those in a minute. But like, are you able to lead yourself? And then they get to watch what you do through that. And then that creates leadership for them. And so for me, that's what a sponsor did in recovery is they taught me how to lead myself by actually sharing how they responded to their feelings. Like I remember the first funeral that I went to Um, and I am I would always avoid funerals. I didn't like the way I felt. I don't think anybody likes the way they feel at funerals, but I was an addict and I was really stupid in the way that I managed that. And I remember um my sponsor saying, I don't know about you, but for me, one of the reasons I'm so uncomfortable is I'm I'm constantly searching for what am I supposed to do to make it better for the Mm -hmm. person that's grieving. And that's actually, especially if I'm not super close to the person that passed, that's the hugest source of my discomfort. And he said, Mike, I don't know, uh, I'm not saying you need to do this, but in my experience, it's really helpful for me just to say that person, I don't have the magic words.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, like I got emotional just now thinking about that. Like the freedom of, I don't have the magic words, and then him saying, after you say that, what you can do is you can hold space. You don't need to say anything. Mm. And that was, yes, that's not like business, but I can give you all kinds of examples where I did something similar in business. But he was leading me by just showing me how he led himself, but he had to acknowledge that he didn't have all the answers and that he didn't have all the control and that he didn't have all, but I still followed him. I followed him wherever he went after that. Actually yeah, probably before powerful.
2: that too. Yeah. The, uh, the permission to operate maybe different than what you think you're supposed to do is freeing. And I think uh, just went to a, a funeral myself and giving the person on the other side permission, uh, pre funeral, just that it's okay to grieve in a, in a private conversation, because even that, uh, in, in many conversations feels like you don't have that permission. And I know that's so freeing for me when I get that of like, Hey, it's, it's actually okay not to be helpful or you go through the stages of grief and you go, it's okay to be angry right now. Um, that permission frees you up. Um, It
1: does. But here's the interesting thing if you pull leaders they're more comfortable probably acknowledging grieving the loss of a loved one than they are in a business meeting saying i don't know
2: yeah wow
1: and if when they say i don't know that allows everybody else to participate that they are leading or that acknowledges that we are facing something that we collectively don't have the answer to but either way, it optimizes the team. Like we, we found a stat, and you guys probably see stats like this, that people spend on average uh, 31 hours a month in unproductive meetings that didn't need to happen. Yeah. And so, I, you know, and Harvard Business Review did this thing. I promise I won't do too many stats. I'm just gonna do a, a two for one right now. We love um, but Harvard Business Review did this yeah. thing where they said, um, as we've transitioned from a manufacturing economy to a services economy, the most scarce resource inside of companies today is time. And, and if you think about, you know, there's all these things that we learn to manage time, um, Zapier, uh, assistant uh, AI assistance, uh, online scheduling, which I'm a personal fan of since I built an online scheduling right. company, right. <laughs> um, time blocking, budgeting. But there's actually one simple skill that will save you 500 hours a year, and that's living mask free. And there's actually specific ways there's there. We've done the research. There are four different ways that leaders wear masks at work Mm -hmm. that cost them 500 hours a year. And that's not about adopting a technology, reading a book or developing a new system. That's literally being able to tolerate the sensations in your body that happen when you're grieving or when you say, I don't know,
2: man, that's awesome. Uh, Before we get too far, I want to go back to uh, those those three legs of the stool back to the systems side. So uh, I've got... Systems sponsor society. There's, I have some questions on sponsor too. Uh, that I want to make sure that we get to because it's different than uh, a coach, like you mentioned, or different than uh, someone else. I think that's powerful. But on systems, um, when you were going through and you were talking about Dell and how you actually didn't feel at home there, you didn't feel comfortable there. It felt like maybe you even prompted to keep your masks on because of yeah. what was going on there. Versus, hey, I could, I could be in the hood. I could be in a place where I don't even look like everyone else and my masks are, are off because we actually are speaking the same language. Go into that a little bit because that's something that's, that's big on, in, in our work is we understand that culture is so tied to language. Um, but just dive in, kind of educate our audience too, of like what do you know about common vocabulary and how that actually allows people to live more mask-free?
1: Yeah, So, uh, and I'll use an addiction um, example to kind of ground us. So um, most people know 12-step program was born out of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, and the interesting thing is that today there are over, I think two, 200 different 12-step fellowships outside of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so one of the things that made AA so powerful was a concept of identification. And by using a common language to diagnose a common problem and access a common solution, Everybody's able to see their story in in someone else's mouth as they are talking. Wow. And the power of that grounds us in a level of safety because we are tribal by nature. We need to fit in with a circle in order to I mean it's wired into us for physical survival. We can go into the sociology, all that kind of stuff. But basically, I want to fit in with you guys because I don't want a tiger to eat me. That's my core. I don't think there's any tigers in my house right now, but like that's that's the core drive that that, that's happening. And the tribes that we actually are most committed to um, now that our communities are very disparate is actually our work tribes um, a lot of times. And so we find these other tribes. And, 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 and so basically when you have a common and this is this unfortunately like not to use it, but it works in cults, it works in religions, it works in countries, it works uh, with diets, it works with, you know, orange theory versus a CrossFit. It it, it works with, with all this stuff where you, if you can create a common language, to address a common problem and equip everybody with a common solution, you create a tribe. And when you create that tribe, you create safety. And when you create that safety, people flourish within that environment. And so if you go back to my example of Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the reasons that um, you started getting these other 12-step fellowships was you just had a very large contingent of drug addicts hanging out in a meeting where they only talk about alcohol. There was nothing wrong with that meeting, but eventually there were enough of them to go, hey, you know what? there are some specific nuances to, you know, the difference between a liquor store and a crack house. So we would really, I'm sorry, drug, recovering drugs, joke about crack a lot. I hope, I don't mean to be (laughs) shocking, but we're just happy that we're not smoking it. So we joke about it all the time. It's not a funny, it's not a funny thing for those using it, but we're like survivors. So we're like, we're able to make fun of it. But the point is, is that you get enough people that are, that have this common, like I use drugs. I use things that were illegal as opposed to something that was legal you get an opportunity to create even more identification. And the stronger that identification gets, the greater the transformation potential becomes. And that's why you start having all these. So like they have a, they have a drug fellowship and then now they're a fellowship specific to specific drugs. And, and you get this identification. So if you go back to leadership, every leader should be working their ass off. When we talk about culture, I think people get really enamored with things like core values on the wall, which I'm not saying isn't important. It is. I had them. I believe in them. But I think that what we're really trying to achieve is not a family. People think it's a family. It doesn't have to be a freaking family. CrossFit is not a family. Um, You know, my 12 step, we call ourselves family, but we know we're not actually family. It's your tribe. It's a group of people that have a common challenge, common language to address that challenge using a common solution. And if leaders can really ground their people in the same language and the same way that they view things, regardless of the instruments that you use to achieve that, you create safety. But another thing you create, this is one thing I'm always worried about. When I talk, I worry that people think I'm like just a self-help guy and I'm not. I'm obsessed with how it drives concrete business outcomes. And so maybe you don't care about safety. Maybe you're a pure profit, profit guy and all you care about, or gal, all you care about is the bottom line. When everybody is using the same language and they feel safe, they are so much more efficient. Absolutely. Seven meetings of posturing end up being one meeting of resolution. Yeah. I mean, there, and there's so many examples that we could go into of that, but it creates so much efficiency. And one of the examples that I, I, I've I been a member of a bunch of different entrepreneurship and leadership groups. And what I found was we were all working our, our, our different systems for how we grew ourselves. And it was so inefficient. And the example I would always use is if you go to a restaurant, which, you know, is almost novel right now with the pandemic. But if you go to a restaurant and your your waiter or waitress speaks a different language than you, and they speak a different language than um, the cook, and they speak a different language than the person that brings you the food, you will literally spend all day ordering and not liking what you get. And when leaders do not take the time to ground everybody in the same language and the same value system and really take the time, not just to say this is what it is, but help them understand this is how we use that language, you can take something that could be 30 minutes and take eight hours and then you multiply that yeah. by the number of people that you have. And so if you don't care about the self-help safety of it, do it for the efficiency.
2: Yeah. I love that example. Uh, and you just crushed exactly what I was wanting you to tap into, which was, uh, building tribe driving safety actually drives results, um, too. And I love that you hopped in, into that. Uh, cause that is, that is amazing. And that's, stuff that we've seen and uh you know google's becoming famous for even the culture code book by daniel coyle has tapped into some of just the power of psychological safety i think the way that you work through that uh is masterful and i hope people even pro you know captured the framework or even the system in that um because i think that is a powerful takeaway uh for people as well Um, absolutely i mean you think about if you think about cross
0: discipline if you're coaching an athlete If you're coaching an artist, if you're coaching a musician, why wouldn't it be the same as a business person? Which is when they play free, they play the best. When they get out of their head, when they get out of, you know, worrying about the moment being too big for them or the pressure, and they literally just see the ball hit the ball, right? And they show up and swing away. It's like that's when you get the best, and it's the same in business. When you show up and you you bring your best and you own your weaknesses, and you you can just be in that moment, you're gonna get the best out of your people. Uh, So I love that. Let's transition this uh, into the business part of your passion and really uh, we'll go back to uh, the company that we referenced uh, you starting um, in the healthcare industry. And where did that fall on this recovery journey? And then how did these principles, which we still haven't, you said it in passing, but the three principles of your mask free living, rigorous authenticity, surrendering the outcome and doing uncomfortable work. How did that start to get integrated? And was that easy or hard for that to be integrated into now your business
2: life?
1: Uh, yeah. So when I was, um, so when I was uh, at about a year clean, I started working at Dell. And, and by the way, working at Dell was great, but you just get something with a publicly traded company with size, you're just going to get a mass culture. There's no company that can escape it. I actually do a lot of work with Google and um, I love the rework project that found psychological safety is the number one trait. And uh, as much, they're the most progressive culture that I see when it comes to uh, self-awareness and acceptance, but they still struggle because of size. So that's just like, that's just what's gonna happen. But so for me, when I was working at uh, at Dell, uh, I found that I had been equipped and these aren't the principles in 12 step recovery. This is my uh, integration and synthesis of the principles being applied to a workplace culture. But I found that I was very different than the people that I was working around. One thing that made me different was I didn't have a college degree. I had long hair, I had hoop earrings and flip-flops and I was in the South. Um, and everybody around me yeah, had, you know. Perfect. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Seriously. And I, and I had never owned a gun and and being from California. And and so like, I just, I stuck out like a sore thumb. And, and so that made me different. Um, now there were similarities, uh, everybody was hiding.
0: Mm.
1: And so the, the four ways that people hide behind a mask at work were that were, are they say yes to things that they could say no to they hide weaknesses They avoid difficult conversations, and they hold back their unique perspective. Those are the four ways that people hide themselves at work. And so I was tempted to do that because that's what everybody else was doing, but it lived in conflict with what I was taught in recovery. Mm. And I was taught that I had to practice these principles in all my affairs. So the way that I've interpreted that conflict, me having to apply my 12-step principles to a corporate life was number one, and these are all the opposite of what we're taught as leaders. Number one, I had to practice rigorous authenticity. So you mentioned that. So we can all point to a time in our life where we kept it real. Rigorous authenticity is being true to yourself and word in word and action, no matter the price. It's being committed to the process of being authentic, not to the outcomes that happen when you take the mask off. And at work, people say yes all the time. They, sh- they, sh- they hide their weaknesses, all that kind of stuff. So, um, so it was like, okay, I got to be true to myself, but how do I actually do that? So then what I talked about, it's the outcome that we're scared of. So number 2, you have to surrender the outcome. So when I would be in these business meetings and 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 be surrounded by all these people and I wanted to say no to something, I wanted to share a weakness, I would get so scared when I thought about actually being true to myself. So scared of what would happen. Will I be laughed at? Will I be considered weak? Will I be will it hurt my ability to be promoted? All the all these different mm. things. And so I had to use my twelve-step recovery to do um, to surrender the outcome. And to me, that that's as simple as identifying what we're scared of, what will happen, and then reclaiming like fifty percent of our energy by identifying all the things that we can't control, including the outcome. Identifying each one, crossing it off a list, and then identifying all the things that we can control. Surrendering the outcome is all about shifting your focus from what you can't control to what you can control. It's simple, but it's not easy. We've all seen people waste a tremendous amount of energy focusing on things that they can't control at the expense of the things that they can. A salesperson that's all upset about their quota compared to the salesperson that's making more calls, neither can truly affect the outcome and and determine it, but they can control what they do. And so that was something that I was taught in recovery. So while I had all these leaders around me that would get into all these gossipy, water cooler conversations about our goals and what management was doing, I was just cranking out work. Because I surrendered all that stuff. And, and I thought being a drug addict in recovery was going to make me weak, but it made me stronger and more efficient in that way. And when mm-hmm. you're able to get clear on what's true to yourself, and when you're able to reclaim masses, massive amounts of energy and get free of the outcomes, you're then free to do what I call uncomfortable work. And most people say, oh, I know how to do uncomfortable work. That makes sense. I'm like, no, you know how to do smart work and hard work. Those are physical and intellectual. Uncomfortable work is emotional. It's a sensation in our body that deters us from action that we know we need to take. How many of you have seen someone doing eight hours of hard work, avoiding five minutes of uncomfortable work? Anybody that is a manager that has to performance manage, someone knows what I'm talking about. Like you know what I'm talking about. Anyone that's ever said yes to a customer when you wanted to say no, they know what I'm talking about. So when you start adding all this stuff up in my time at Dell, I went from thinking that I had this like way of looking at the world that was going to hold me back and make me an outsider. And I was both right and wrong. It did make me an outsider. I don't want to tell anyone that living in that living and leading mask free is easy. It's not when you are the first ones through the door, your nose gets bloody, but mm-hmm. that's the price of, that's the price of progress. That's a price of revolution. That's a price of change. And so I was an outsider. I did get made fun of sometimes it, of the worst things that you ever think are gonna happen to you never happen. So most of the things I feared didn't happen, but I did get made fun of. I did, when I I told people I was a recovering addict and someone started a rumor that I'd relapsed, I lost some battles, but it made, I thought it was gonna hold me back and it made me so successful that my mentors became my employees. And I was able to move through the corporate ladder so quickly that in in my 20s, I had 19 direct reports and a $250 million budget with no college degree, with long hair. Well, I probably cut it by then. And, you know, being this California drug addict, like just hanging out in this Fortune 50 company. And so what I realized during that process was all my fears about taking my mask off were unfounded. And I had not accounted for the opportunity cost of keeping it on. And so when I started to see how it made me so much more successful and I started leading teams, I couldn't control the larger culture around me, but I could control the culture of my team to a certain extent. And I taught them these principles. I didn't use these exact words at the time. And that made my teams more successful. Mm. So by the time I left there and started my own startup, I was like, I'm gonna take this and create an entire culture around it. And that's why, what, 10 minutes later, I'm finally getting to the part that you asked me about. I'm sorry.
0: It's all good. (laughs) It's all good. I want to, before I forget, please tell me you've seen the movie Office Space.
1: Uh, Yes, I worship that movie.
0: Okay. I'm just now drawing a conclusion to how, in the weirdest way, how impactful that movie was on me. Because even though I knew it was a comedy, the moment that guy gets hypnotized and literally just starts being himself and everything starts improving, even though other things got more complicated, relationships, people taking things the wrong way, But it was amazing right yeah he's sitting in the meeting with the bobs and they're like he's living mask
1: free exactly like (laughs) like, what do you do well you know i waste time for three hours and like yeah i never thought about that until you just said it either but you're right he's like all that fear is gone
0: it's gone and they go why are you wasting so much time he's like have i ever told you about tps reports and they're like no (laughs) what are those (laughs) And by the end they love him they're like this is the guy and that was the first time i ever thought like is that actually true i know we're laughing in the movie like, is that actually a better way to approach life? Like, is there something immediately freeing, trustworthy, and uh, almost more fluid? And I love what you were saying earlier. You know, for you, I imagine it was, I can either control this outcome, try to, and and potentially save some pain, save some face, but almost guarantee, and that's the part I think, maybe you mentioned opportunity cost, almost guarantee that I'm going to go back to addiction, right? That it's, that it's like, which life do I want? Do I want a yep. life that maybe I could protect myself from some pain or do I want a life free of addiction, which is the pain I know I don't want anymore. And to me, you know, again, I've had anxiety, uh, kind of general anxiety for a lot of my life. And the last five years I've really tried to look at dead in the face and start moving through it and the coping mechanisms that came out of it and all that kind of stuff. And I realized for me, it was somewhere along the way buying the idea that either this is not okay or I'm not okay. Right. That like, yeah. if this happens, I won't be okay. Or this feeling yeah. I'm having is not okay. So I needed to go away. And, but when you do this mask free living, you realize, okay, even if they do make fun of me or I didn't, I got passed up for a promotion or whatever, I'm still okay. Like this is okay. And it's not worth the price I paid, which was faking it and feeling like a fake or, you know, diving into addiction to cope with the feeling of not being known. Is that part of this? Are you, did you experience the same thing? Like, this is okay. I can actually handle even the worst case. Not just that this guarantees me a better outcome.
1: Yeah, the um, the it, when I'm doing my my process using the mask free um, program and like in a workshop or with with someone that you know we're coaching, one of the things that we try to identify is their uh, shout out to Joe Rogan uh, fear factor. Yes. And and the fear factor the, the for me what that means is. Um, We let fear deter us from taking action that we know is good for us. We also let it rob us of our precious time. And so it's really important to identify how um, realistic we like to do um, forecasting in business, like how accurate are you in predicting where you're going to be this quarter? So let's get really accurate in how significant this fear is. And one of the things that we do is when people are talking about the outcomes they're scared of, we ask them to give us a specific numerical rating of how probable it feels illogical, emotionally, that it's going to happen. And then I tell them that all fear comes down to one of two fears, fear of death by, by physical, or fear of death by social. We're either gonna get kicked out of the tribe and have no love and no human connection, or we're going to die. And so when I, so basically I do the trick that all of us know, or most of us know that you just keep asking why. So they say, well, I'm really scared that if I propose this very different plan to my, my team, you know, they'll reject me. Okay, so what'll happen? And basically I just, I keep going until I get to either I am dead or I'm homeless or everybody in my life has kicked me out of their life as you can imagine that takes quite a bit of time and by the time we get to that place and then i go okay so now your wife has left you your kids don't love you your your family hates you all because you proposed this thing to your teammates um, in a board meeting that, that that was you know a little radical um and and nobody loves you on this earth how probable is that and they'll be like oh like one percent and then you just take how, the number that they rated how, how real it feels, by how objectively actually probable it is. And it's like, okay, so you're giving your fear about 20 times more value than the time that you could be saving and doing something instead by just pushing through that fear. Because you're reacting as if everybody will hate you for the rest of your life.
0: 100%. And we're
1: letting those feelings, I mean, and this is why, like, this is why the old school that says feelings don't matter and, and self-help, they have to understand there are people that just focus on self-help, but they don't think about how it impacts business. But I think that we, on this call, we are obsessed with how it impacts business because we see how it creates a competitive advantage. 100%. And if, when you can move through that feeling in your body, I needed, see, this here's the thing that you guys don't need. You're what we call normies. Okay, so my wife loves being called a normie.
0: Is that like Muggles and Harry Potter? (laughs) No, (laughs) I
1: haven't watched Harry Potter, so I don't know how positive or negative that is, but it's a positive thing. It means you could have a beer, you could could do whatever. Um, But for us addicts, going back to what you said, I walked around every day at Dell with a loaded gun pointed at my head. Because if I choose to not practice these principles there, I won't practice them everywhere because it's a way that I live, not a way that I work. And if I do that, I'm going back to using, which I know will kill me. And that's why I think that actually addicts in recovery have a competitive advantage over normie leaders. No mm-hmm. offense to the normies out there. I love yeah. normies. I'm married to one, right? I, I, my daughter will hopefully be a normie, God willing, <laughs> you know, we'll find out. But but the point is that I have an incentive to walk through that fear because yeah. what waits for me on the other side is very, very different than for most people when you're, th- when you talk, when I'm scared that I'll have to find another job. Because even when I'm doing this with people and we don't get into the dramatic stuff, I'll be like, so you might lose your job. Like, do you think that you wouldn't be able to find another job? They'd be like, no, I can find another job. Do you think you could find, you have options of jobs that you think that you would you, would- you would like? No, actually, I think i would probably find something I like. In fact, our competitors are pretty good. I'm like, then what the heck, what are we talking about here? <laughs> yeah. Like, but what's the cost of you always... In, in most companies, we are, don't train people to be leaders, we train them to be followers. Mm-hmm. So what's the price of you not leading yourself in that moment? Are you missing out on your opportunity to truly become the leader that you wanna be, or are you gonna shut up and not share your radical idea or call out that blind spot because you wanna follow the other quote unquote leaders? Mm. The opportunity cost of that could be very, very real, whereas the reality of you getting kicked out of the tribe is probably not so great. Yeah.
2: I think about this exercise of understanding that, you know, you have the high incentive gun to your head every single day, but the person who doesn't, the normies, if you actually started taking the probability of whether or not they were going to get to that dream result that they've always wanted and desired so deeply, the probability is actually probably pretty high that they're not going to get there because they actually haven't incentivized themselves and understand that actually you, just because you imagine it, it's, it's going to happen. It's like, no, no, no. Like, I love that exercise of understanding that, yeah, on the low fear side, it's probably a high probability the person's not going to get their results either that they're, they're deeply wanting. Um, which just may in, help you even end up creating another outcome to go, okay, now we understand what, what reality is and start operating in that. Mm. Versus, That's why
1: I tell people the outcome, yeah. the shift in thinking is to go from, I'm trying to achieve these goals to my goal is the process. Mm -hmm. And if you can commit to the process and surrender the outcomes, I'm not the only person that can provide testimony to the fact that you'll actually achieve way beyond your dreams. I mean, I got so many friends in recovery alone and other people that now that I work with with the Mass Free Program, that when they let go of all those things that have been stopping them that they're scared of, they... I'm not going to say they, this isn't an an online course that you, where you see the ad on YouTube and they promise you a Ferrari when passive income and all that kind of crap. Um, I'm not promising you uh, the Ferrari, the Lamborghini. I'm I'm promising you how you, you think you'll feel if you have a Ferrari or Lamborghini, except the difference is if you have a Ferrari or Lamborghini, you're probably not going to feel the way you think. Mm -hmm. but the level of freedom that you can feel in being your true self, you will find your purpose. You will find the best use of your skills and talents. You will be able to be more successful if you unlock your true self as your competitive advantage and your secret weapon. But for a lot of people, they're scared that they won't get what they want. And my experience is that when you actually commit to the process as the outcome that you are chasing, you short yourself when you write out what you want.
0: Mm -hmm. Come on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was true for me uh, all the way back to something as simple as exercise. When I was, it was like years of me being out of shape and knowing I shouldn't be out of shape. And I realized the trap I fell in was the goal, the 90 days from now. I want to be here in 90 days from now. And I was not making a lifelong commitment to a change of my my relationship with exercise and my relationship with my health until one day I was walking around a track. I was like, man, what would it be like to be in better shape at 40 than 30? Be in better shape at 50 than 40? Mm -hmm. Like what would that be like for me to have a like where I fall even more in love with whatever activity I choose, whether it's working out or running or whatever. And that was the first time I started getting momentum and I haven't stopped. That has now become my part of my new normal, but I never stuck when I was just seeing the goal as like, how do I lose weight? Or how do I get here by beach season or whatever the thing was? It's the same thing with reading writing my book. I was so stopped up, my first book with insecurity and you know, all that kind of stuff. Then the deadline would pass and like, oh my God, you know, and then you feel the, I got to hit the next deadline. And I just decided my buddy who's an artist, a musician, a musician. He's like, you got to think about this as one of many books. And that what you fell in love with is not this book or any book, but you fell in love with sharing ideas. So get Mm -hmm. back in the process of sharing ideas, you know, right. Capturing those, writing those down and just don't stop, you know? Uh, And so things like that helped me similar to you just saying that's the process. And when you say uncomfortable work, I hear resistance. I don't know if you've ever read um, Stephen Pressfield and his, mm-hmm. his, oh, my God. You're about to find a, um, a brother in arms. He's, he's much older than, than both of us uh, and rarely does interviews, but I'm going to try to get him one day to be on our podcast. Uh, but he wrote uh, The Legend of Bagger Vance and oh. some other big kind of uh, movies that got turned into, sorry, books that got turned into movies. Um, but he, he wrote a book called The War of Art. And it's the thing that most changed my life. Somebody maybe to you is 12, the 12 steps. It was like my Bible that I carried around with me everywhere I went and all it basically said in short chapters and a short book was in a hundred different ways, what you're feeling is called resistance hmm. and you have to move past it. That basically what stands between you and any good thing you want to do. He said anything, moral business, any good thing is going to be this thing we call resistance and it's mostly internal and it's a feeling. And it'll beg with you. It'll bargain with you. It'll bully you. It'll do whatever tactic it can to keep you the same. But all you have to do is walk through it. And mm. so there's this whole book about how to overcome resistance that came from him being a struggling writer, living on the streets, never finishing scripts. You know, uh, doing and they, it's one of the best books I've ever read. But um, I, I resonate. I, re- I, I resonate deeply with you on that uncomfortable work because that's what that meant to me was the emotional, not the hard or the smart, but the emotional. That most people wouldn't even understand when you tell them it's hard, you know. Um, and so, what I'm interested in now is, well, let's go into you starting the company, and in particular, yeah, like
1: 50 minutes later, right? My bad. Hey, dude,
0: <laughs> it's all good. This is the conversation I want to have. This is the real human conversation. Um, and in particular, that I want to just fast forward to that. What one? What was the company? And then two, to set up that that first major deal, because in my mind, yeah. that's where these principles really got
2: tested, right? Yeah. So it sounds like you yeah. know what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah. So I, you know, I, at Dell, I'd been like, Oh, I can actually do this. It's good for me. But then I I started building a company. I'm like, Oh, we can use these principles. And, and it sounded great, but I'd never been an entrepreneur with everything on the line. So, um, so just for the context, for what I had on the line, um, in 2010, left my job height of the recession, uh, we had no outside funding whatsoever so maxed out my credit card drained my bank account withdrew from my 401k bet everything on a company I'd never been an entrepreneur we didn't have any connections no patents no degrees nobody had ever built a company to a million in revenue like we should have failed (laughs) and uh i you know using the the credit card and my savings i went out on the road and and we we built this piece of software and our mission was to reinvent access to healthcare by allowing patients to digitally self-schedule appointments online in 30 seconds or less and and at the time, 99% of healthcare appointments were made over the phone. Fun fact, uh, 90% of healthcare appointments are still made over the phone. It's a wow. problem that still needs to be. We created a multi-billion dollar industry in, in creating in, uh, this company and it's still not fully solved. Um, so that just tells you how behind healthcare is. So for us, um, we are learning a new industry, building the company. I've been out trying to get hospitals to buy um, I get laughed out of nine and then one would go, oh my God, you guys are going to revolutionize access to healthcare." And so those are the ones I focused on, but we were running out of money and we didn't have a way to get more funds. And again, it was a recession. And then, uh, one of the hospitals we were working with was, was part of one of the largest national hospital systems in the U S publicly traded company, huge, um, 80 hospitals across the U S now or 90. And, um, and we had one of their hospitals under contract. And so we went through this whole process, pitching them on going enterprise wide. And we, we thought we were actually going to fail. Um, and then they finally told us we're going to go nationwide with your product. And in addition to that, we're going to spend $3 million advertising it. And we had no advertising budget at the time. It literally is the closest I think I ever got to getting high. I haven't relapsed in my recovery, but like, dude, it was awesome. Cause we were going to go from thousands in revenue to millions. Uh, We were going to have a tremendous proof of concept. Um, It was just, it was going to do everything that we wanted. And it was the moment I'd always dreamed of. And then the next day, everything fell apart because that night after the conversation um, we had a failure in our software. And at the time we had seven hospitals under contract and only one was associated with this chain. And so when I found out about this failure, I was like, okay, there's only a one in seven chance it's the one that's gonna screw over this deal. So hopefully it's not that one, but apparently God knew the kind of story that I wanted to be able to carry uh, 10 years later. Yeah. Um, and in my book, I talk, about, uh, I talk about this story quite a bit. Um, so he helped me out and I didn't even realize it. And yeah. uh, it turned out to be their, their hospital. And the thing is, is that we had, um, our software had failed in a way that impacted one patient at one hospital and neither of them knew. We were the only ones that knew And we are contractually obligated to let them know. And I knew that if we let them know, they would cancel the national rollout and cancel that hospital, which would be like half of our revenue because the other ones were cheaper. And we were probably going to go bankrupt, have no case studies, run out of money. Everything was going to go to crap. Wow. And I was, I remember I was sitting there and I was like, trying to figure out what do we do? And, and. Members of my team said, let's just not tell them. And their, their logic was not conflicted morally. They were saying, look, this isn't something that egregiously hurt the patient. We understand what the issue is. We'll fix it. It's not like it's all the patients or anything like that. And it didn't hurt them. Like the patient is fine. So let's just fix it rather than creating a whole uh, much to do about nothing. And I was sitting there and, and that was the real first test of practicing rigorous authenticity surrounding the outcome and doing uncomfortable work because I'd never been a startup leader before. Um, but what I realized was I'd been a recovering addict for eight years and I knew how to practice these principles in all my affairs. And so I, um, I got a call from a sponsee while I was trying to figure out what to do. And I remember telling him to surrender the outcome. And then I get off the phone, I'm like, oh crap. I got to surrender the outcome. Mm. And so I, I, I stood um, for what I believed in and challenged the, the teammate that was saying, we, sh- we don't tell them and I picked up the phone and I called them and I told them about the error and I braced for the response and the response I got was not what I expected. It was a ton of laughing. And I thought that it was so bad that she was laughing really hard, but it turned out that she said, we are so used to getting calls like this from partners that have impacted 20,000 patients negatively and you didn't even impact the patient negatively and it was just one. I can't believe you told me and that led to a level of trust that made them go enterprise wide, um, made them adopt all of our new products. They became the super customer that every startup wants at the beginning mm-hmm. to have that. I and mean, they took us from, God, I think we were at like 300,000 in revenue or something like that, or you know whatever, to like over 2 million. I mean, and that, you know, like only 1% of startups crossed that $1 million threshold um and 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 then it led to us getting all of the largest health systems or almost all the largest health systems but the most important thing is not that we won the contract it's that I got to tell that story to every customer and every employee that I ever met with after mm. because that was the way going back to creating language and creating the common framework that was the way that I said no these aren't just values on the freaking wall this is how I live this is how we live cuz I I coach founders too. And, and one of the things I tell them is, is that there's no point in trying to figure out what your business core values are. You already have them, they're your personal values. Yep. Because you will you won't act in integrity if you have something different on the wall. So you might as well just figure out how to codify your personal values. And that test was so scary. Like I was petrified. I was looking at my employees and I'm like, dude, I'm not going to, you're going to be out of a job. You took this risk on me. We wanted to make this change in the world. That wasn't going to happen. I was going to be financially ruined. I mean, like it was just, everything was on the line, but I was committed to the process, not the outcome. And as a great, I mean, there are times where I was rigorously authentic. I surrendered the outcome. I did uncomfortable work in business transactions and we didn't win business, but we did really well. And we were acquired by a publicly traded company. We became an Inc 500 startup with no funding and, and no connections in the recession. I mean, we did all these great mm-hmm. things. And when I look back at the 50 wonderful human beings that would wax companies with 500 human beings working for them, the only thing I can point to, even now when we meet up for like alumni dinners, which is, I think is a real treat for a company to do since we were acquired in 2015, um, the one thing I can point to is we had a truly mask-free culture. And, and everybody unleashed the power of the true self, but also what that meant was we were incredibly efficient. We were incredibly efficient and everybody scaled because nobody hid. I think, that, and I think that's why customers like doing business with us over our competitors. I think that's why we were able to unlock innovation at the rate that we did. Mm-hmm. We were so efficient in so many ways and, and it led to an incredible outcome. Um, truth is anyone that knows me, I didn't wanna sell the company. And so I was actually really sad at the time but now uh, everything happens for a reason. Now that I'm sitting here with you guys telling the story, I know why I did it.
2: Yeah. Wow. Man, I uh, love that, Michael. This is it's kind of just a curious curious thing because I think it'll test, test the fact that uh, our lives aren't just these moments, but we actually have to keep living them. So one of the pieces I want to dig in on that story is, you then had a chance, because when we listen to your TED talk, you talk about how you interview people. And yeah. we interview them, and we want them to share their weaknesses. And most people end up sharing, you know, what's your weakness? And they just take a strength and they turn it into their weakness. And it is the yeah. most frustrating thing ever to hear. Uh, and you did, you know, you gracefully shared that. But let's say you, you actually did that. You interviewed this team member. And now that team member has done the thing that we don't want them to do. They've actually said, let's not be our authentic selves. They're, they're experiencing their own resistance, which is their own fear really, I want to dig into like, actually, how did you as the leader of the company and the leaders on the team, like, how did you guys manage from there? Did you say, oh, look, you, you know, we have to crucify that person. That person is, you know, they have not shown their true true selves, get them out. Like, how did you manage in the midst of that? Because you made the right decision, but internally you still had a a conversation. You have one of those difficult conversations that creates an uncomfortable thing that a lot of, people try to avoid, uh, in their management? What did you guys do in in that circumstance?
1: So, so two, uh, three things. So the first thing is, um, actually taking the time to practice applying the principles of our culture in the interview process so that we're not surprised at someone not executing to those values. So I, I talk about how I would ask about the weakness and we, we would do all that. But like I had people that were quote unquote, a players and I would not hire them and I would hire the B plus player if they aligned with this value. Cause my greatest fear is somebody won't tell me the truth. And I don't want to be surrounded by people where I have to question that, especially when you're a CEO um, and it gets lonely at the top. So um, first of all, it's filtering. Second of all, it's example. So, Anybody that gets through the filter, I'm, I, I think it's reasonable to say that they were open to being vulnerable and authentic and, and, and to live mask free. But the question is, how do you offset all of the wiring that the world has done on them prior to them walking through the door? They literally have reflexes they don't even know that they have. And so that was so the thing that I would do is I would address it. I would address it and I would model it. And Simon Sinek has a book that I, I love that says leaders eat last, but I will tell you that authentic leaders go first. And I would go to my team and I would, I, so I still remember, um, when we had five employees and we ended up on this national TV show and all the exposure, I, I didn't know how it would kill us, but I was fairly certain it could hurt us. And I'd never let a startup before and I was terrified. And I, and it occurred to me that I had no idea how to be a CEO. And I had an email signature that said CEO, but I was like a little kid in a suit. I had no idea what I was doing. And so my first inclination was to tell my team because that was my recovery talking. But then the wiring kicked in and it said, you can't tell your team that. They'll leave you, they'll lose confidence in you. They'll, I mean, they'll question everything you say. That, that's not what a real man does. That's not what a real leader does, like whatever. And I had to practice principles. And this was actually before that moment with that large company. I went to them and hat in hand and I said, I don't know how to be a CEO and I have a lot of weaknesses. I'm not quite sure what to do with them. I'm committed to working on them, but do you guys have any ideas on what I should do? No leader had ever done that with me in my history of leadership. Wow. And they helped me find a mentor. And I started sharing with them my weaknesses on a regular basis and then what I did to work on them. I didn't wait, I didn't do what most leaders do and they wait until they solve the problem. They say, hey, I want you to come to me if you have a problem, this is a safe place, but I'm gonna go over there with the other CEOs and executives right. that are part of my mastermind group and I'm gonna tell them I'm all fucked up and then I'm gonna come back here and tell you, hey guys, guess what? I had no idea how to do X, but now I know how to do it. Now, what are you struggling with? Like that, that's not how it works, man. Like you gotta go first. So I would go first on the, on, on the professional side and the personal side, and then I would challenge them in the spirit of difficult conversations when they would re, uh, revert to the old wiring. So between those two things, we had a really great culture. However, um, it, the last chapter in my book is a chapter I wasn't gonna put in it. And it, now it's my favorite chapter. And when people read the book, it's their favorite chapter too. And it's called the Tale of Two Divorces. And I thought, how appropriate for a book about living mask-free that I'm going to end it not with a chapter on how I'm awesome and you're going to save the world. It's a chapter of how I stopped practicing everything that I preached in the book. And it's when I went through a divorce with my business partner and my wife in the same year. And it's about how I stopped practicing all this stuff and single-handedly almost ruined our, our company culture. That's why I say I know how to build a mask-free culture because I also know how to dismantle one. And it's all I could trace it all back to Um, I hired an employee where I chose not to filter them through these values. I chose to look at them through rose colored glasses. I put them in a leadership position and they, and they started a coup and tried to kick me out of my own company and turn my partner against me. And, and, and we had never lost an employee we wanted to keep. And within six months of hiring this person, I'd lost five as a percentage that was, you know, a seventh of our team. Wow, And it was a living hell. I was in a war on two fronts. And, and at the same time I, in the book, I share about how I climbed out of that hole. But I think the key is, is that a know how you filter for masks. And, and it's just like, if you're hiring a salesperson, if you hire a salesperson and you don't make them role play, that is stupid. Mm. You're asking them to do a a thing and you're going to talk about everything other than making them do the thing. When an athlete goes to do tryouts, they have them actually shoot, put the ball in the hoop. They have them actually run the sprint, right? Like it's, it's, it's insane. Like, so anyhow, so hiring sales. So actually going through the process, um, getting vulnerable, pushing them for vulnerability, um, asking, like, I wouldn't just ask about the weakness. I'd ask about like, what have you done to grow lately? And I really keenly pay attention to how they talked about the challenge before they talk about the growth, um, all that kind of stuff. And then, uh, and then living it, reinforcing it and teaching it. And then if you find someone that can't deal with it, it does not matter how talented they are. They have to go. But I threw away a, to long ass answer. Sorry, but, uh, I threw away a mask free culture. So I know how to ruin it. I know how to build it. I know how to ruin it. I know how to reclaim it. Um, And those are the three things that all contribute to that.
2: Yeah. I, it was a a long answer. I respect it, but I think it was really good because I I didn't know that about you. And I think it's all, it's a great plug for the book, but also like that is the reality of one of the things that I loved as you began sharing and and I'm getting to hear your story is uh, this understanding that we don't arrive you know that this is lifestyle and this is life and you get the decision every single day. Of course, you're going to still keep going to your meetings. I think that's powerful. I want to bring that back to just talking about sponsors and the power of mentors and sponsors. And, and I want to make sure that we hit that, um, during our conversation. Um, why is that kind of the third leg on the stool? How has that been powerful for you? How is it different than maybe what someone else might imagine? Uh, how can they, how can people apply that concept into their lives? Uh, Rift on sponsors for a little bit.
1: So sponsors are the greatest leaders in the world. That's what I believe. And that's what I know. Um, I think every CEO and executive should lead like a sponsor. Um, And the the difference is, well, I'll set it up with a story. So my sponsor's name, my first sponsor's name was Chuck. And Chuck had 15 years clean. He had everything going for him. and And I wanted to be like Chuck. Um, and I remember, you know, the level of faith that he had in my recovery, um, I had like 10 months clean and I was moving and I didn't have money for a, uh, like a a moving truck or a budget rental truck or whatever. And I went to his house and I was just telling him and he just threw me the keys to his $50,000 truck. And I was like, you do realize that when you throw the keys to a car, to a drug addict, the car gets chopped, right? Like it does not come back. (laughs) <laughs> this is stupid. Even I know this is stupid. And he said, yeah, but I, I, I know that you're working the program. So I trust you. And, uh, and I brought the truck back because I was working the program. So, um, so he was like this person that I just idolized. And at the same time, he would always tell me, uh, I'm just another addict. I'm just another addict. And I thought that was like the fly, arrogant, humble crap that everybody does. When like, Oh, you know, <laughs> it wasn't nothing or I'm, I'm, you know, CEO that's like, you know, runs a 50 million, billion, like, Oh, I just hire people that are smarter than me. Like oh, the humble brag bullshit. Um, I mean, there's some truth to it. That's great. Yes. But like it, most of it is just like bullshit. And, and so I thought that he was doing that. He's like, Oh, I'm just another addict. I'm just another addict. And then, uh, at, at about a year and a half, we were at a Christmas, at a year and a half clean. We were at a Christmas party. And, um, he was literally eating desserts like it was cocaine. Like he was attacking the dessert table like it was full of drugs. And when I was watching what he was doing, putting more sugar in his body than any human being should ever do, I was like, this is addiction, man. It's just a different manifestation of addiction. And then I I got really scared because all that wiring around leadership came back. And it said, if he can't handle his sugar intake, why am I trusting him with my life? And so I called him and I was like, Chuck, I'm wow. really scared. I don't know that I want you to be my sponsor anymore. I said, why? And I said, well, frankly, I saw you in full addiction mode when you were, when you were at that Christmas party eating sugar. He's like, Mike, I told you that if you put me on a pedestal, I will fall right the hell off. Wow. I am another addict like you. I have an issue with sugar. I've been able to practice these principles in a way that allows me to stop using drugs, become a productive member of society. But this is a place where I'm really struggling. And as we walk through this together, you will get to learn from my experience. He didn't say he had it all figured out. He didn't say he had the answer. He showed me that as a leader, as a, as a human, we all do a disservice to the people that follow us when we don't acknowledge our humanity Yeah, because they have to manage their humanity too. Nobody gets to take the two dimensional image on the screen and go live their life. Like that's not how it works. So the fact that he was able, so that's when it really sunk in. And what I started to learn about sponsorship when I became one is I wanted to control my, my sponsees experience. And I wanted to be to tell them what to do. And one of the things that I learned is um, full step programs follow Gestalt. And that is where we do not tell anyone what to do. We simply share our experience. And so the beauty about a sponsor is, um, I think even, and no, no, I love executive coaches, coaches, um, leaders, but no matter what they say, I think we always think that they are the quote unquote experts to some degree. Right. Right. And, and, and I think we're trained to think that way. What a sponsor is, is somebody that has used a system that is the expert. And, and what they do is they openly share their wins and their losses equally in how they've implemented it and how they've experienced it. Because what that does is, is that gives every human being that's following them the full diversity of the only thing they actually have to offer that's truly theirs, and that is their experience. And mm. instead of hiding the different experiences, they give you the full buffet, and then you can go okay, well, this makes sense for me. This makes sense for me. I relate to this. I relate to this. Or you can go mess up and come back and go like, dude, I really should have done what you did in that situation. But either way, what that does is that makes me own my experience as a sponsee. The reason that sponsors are so powerful is they create what I call automatic leadership. They lead themselves and include their sponsees in that process and never take responsibility for their sponsees' leadership They just take responsibility for giving them the view of how it works and giving them their experience. And as a result, the sponsor has no choice but to own their experience and lead themselves using the same system. And I do think that coaches are the closest thing to it. And I actually think that the spirit of coaching, like I actually feel like I know enough about you guys right now that I think you do that exactly the way I just described it when you are working with your, your founders. But I still think that coaches like I still think of Bobby Knight throwing a chair. I still think of him as having power and being like <laughs> right, you know right. more powerful and all that kind of stuff. And so regardless of how you do it, I still think we put coaches on a pedestal the same way I put Chuck on a pedestal, but the one nice byproduct of sponsors being drug addicts is it's not hard to see them as weak. It's not hard to see them as human because they're freaking drug addicts. Right? Yes. So that allowed me to kind of go, okay, he's sharing the full like variety of his humanity how he's leading himself through it and he's going to teach me the process that he uses to manage himself but instead of only showing me the wins and hiding the losses he's going to show me everything so that i get the benefit and what he used to always tell me and i'll stop with this is he said what my predecessors did is what i want to do for you my predecessors allowed me to stand on their shoulders and see further than they could and i want you to be the same and uh he did that i uh God, I get emotional just thinking about it. I, He's got 30 plus years clean now. And he says that there are things that I got in my first five years that he didn't get in his first 15, but it's not because I was special. It's because I had more experience, strength, and hope to work with than he did. So that's, that's why sponsors are awesome. Dude, yeah. That's beautiful.
0: Uh, can I just give you your next business idea? Your next billion yeah. dollar idea. Can you create a version of this exact three legged stool for normies?
1: Do you know that I already did that? No. Are you are you just setting me up?
0: No. no I already uh-huh. did that.
1: It launched today. What? <laughs> nice. So, uh, so thank you for that. And I won't I won't go off on it. But basically, in Brene Brown, so Bre- I- if you can't tell that I'm deeply inspired by Brene Brown, then you, have, you don't know who Brene Brown is because it's yeah. clear that I exactly. like worship her. Yes, I love her. Uh, what she did not provide though was a step-by-step implementation plan. That's what I'm providing. But she wrote in some Perfection that she went to 12-step meetings and it didn't fit. And she wishes that there was the 12-step meetings, uh, the 12-step programs for normies. Yeah. And so that is what I've created. And, and that's what my book goes into. It's the mask-free program. And it has three legs of the stool, the mask-free system, which are the principles that we talked about mask-free sponsor and mask-free society. Right now, every Monday night at 6 p.m., we have a mask-free society meeting where CEOs, frontline employees, teachers, stay-at-home parents, whatever, we all talk about the three principles and how to take our mask off. And then there are people working their individual mask-free action cards with a mask-free sponsor. And so we literally, like, we've been in beta and we've got maybe 30 people in it right now with about 10 mask-free sponsors. Um, but we've been meeting for two months. Well, I've been, so I've been doing versions of this for three years, but we finally put it all together. And the thing that I realized was missing is 12 step programs didn't explode until there was literature. And so I couldn't really spark the revolution that I want to spark until there was a book that outlined it And my book outlines the mastery program. And if you go to masteryprogram.com, you can be a part of it.
0: Okay. I did not set you up on purpose. That's, that's crazy. (laughs) Well, then
1: everything happens the way it's supposed to.
0: That's right. Cause literally my thought was every time I have a conversation with someone about this, so I've I've had two friends in the last two years um, kind of go through uh, AA basically and I saw the life change, but I also saw such a commonality of root issues, even though mine wasn't expressing itself in let's say alcohol or drugs or whatever. But like, just like you said, we all get addicted to regulating ourselves in some way. Yes. um and it, we all get trapped i was just telling a client the other day your carefully constructed self is killing you right
1: <laughs> that's great
0: it's killing that's the
1: you. quote have you posted yeah. that particular quote on like social
0: no no, I forget no he never does <laughs> i forget to do something like that dude I, I said I like success it. success for the carefully constructed self is a burden but success for the for the true version of yourself is a gift right mm. Because if you succeed while wearing a mask, everything gets worse because now you have to wear it all the time and you have to keep the mask on and let no one see. It's like the Wizard of Oz. You can't let anybody behind the curtain, right? Um, but so I was, I'm was, i talking with them and I was like, and I'm not, this is not true, but part of me was saying, I wish I was an addict because there's a clear place to go. Yeah. you know? No, like, yes. I've had so many people say community. that.
1: I have so many friends that have come to our meetings and been like, okay, well, like i'm not into drugs and i don't use but like i could totally use this in my life like what the hell but then the but because of identity yeah it, it doesn't fit for them and so that's why you need to create something like the mastery program that is, that is like basically the founder of aa stripped out religion um and created a non-religious fellowship that allowed people to codify how to not use and what yeah. i've done is i've stripped out the things that are specific to addiction in 12 step program and applied it to, to essentially professional leadership, but really self-leadership in any dimension. Mm-hmm. And and so um, actually the client that connected us is a member of that program. Yes. Um, yeah.
0: Come on. Oh, he didn't so, tell me that part. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, dude. Uh, well, I'm so glad you said that. And I will say, I just have to say this because I'm so uh, paranoid about this stuff. Um, we are truly being built with purpose. Um, and so it will not be a billion dollar idea ever um At the same time, I ran a nonprofit here in Nashville for three years, and I did not want to structure it as a nonprofit. But the way it's set up is there's a supporting, you can, there's a free version of it, and there's a supporting membership. But anybody that wants a supporting membership and they can't afford it, I'll scholarship them because this is about uh, purpose over profit. But it is a place where people can go, take off their masks, practice applying these three principles, get a master sponsor, and unlock their full potential. And it means so much to me that you had me on here and it means even more that you thought that was a great idea before you knew that was something that I cared
0: about. Yeah, that's awesome. Heck yeah, man. I'm so
2: pumped about that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can't script this stuff.
2: Yes, man. Uh, Michael, let's, uh, let's hit you with our, uh, our final five lightning round questions. Let's do it. And, uh, man, thank you so much. Uh, it has been amazing. So, no, that was great. Uh, question number one, uh, if you could ingrain one message into an organization, what would it be?
1: Live and be mask free.
2: Boom. I could, yeah, we I could know that's that like
1: sounds like cheating, but it's really what I would do.
2: No, man, that's it. That's the, that's that. <laughs> definitely. Uh, what's the, single, what's the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business, and what was the worst advice?
1: Oh, God. Um, I think the best advice I ever got was not from a business leader. It was from a sponsee. And I was worried about um, how I was going to scale with my company. And he said, you're just another dude in recovery. How'd you do that? And that's when I realized that I surrounded myself with people that were willing to be vulnerable about their challenge and work together to grow. And that's when I realized that I got a sponsor. And so I started looking for my equivalent of what I got in the 12 step program for my business because i realized that all the things i needed to do to grow my business i didn't know so there's no point in trying to find the answer on my own i just need to find the place to get the answer yeah oh
2: that's awesome
1: Um, that was the best advice the worst advice i'm going to cheat it's every freaking person that is arrogant enough to think that their experience is my expertise is what i need to know and what i need to do there are a lot of people that say oh what you need to do is x and i don't usually trust those people what i trust is people that say what i did was y so anybody that ever tried to say, this is what you need to do, um, that was the worst advice I ever got.
2: Yeah. Oh, man, that that is, that's like bait for all of us. Thank you. Yeah, common heart there. Uh, great answer. Thank you. Uh, number three, uh, being completely honest. So what's the secret fear that keeps you up at night?
1: Oh, wow. Um <sighs> Right now, I have uh, invested a significant amount of what I made off of selling my company in the mastery program. Mm. And um, I am scared that I will fail my wife, my daughter, and my soon to be son by having indulged a personal passion at the extent of our ability to provide for our family and that we will have to go through a significant amount of correction financially and sell our house and, change our lifestyle if we're not able to just replace the income that i had previously um i all the intellectual reasons to believe that that will happen but it is still what scares me and then the thing that scares me even more is if that if i make the change in the world that i aim to make and we don't have to sell our house i'm scared i won't be happy when i get to that place
2: yeah man a beautiful answer thank you for modeling uh what you're communicating to everybody uh, on this podcast is beautiful, man. man. Uh, Thank you for that. Uh, what's the dream result that you're driving towards every day?
1: So three different milestones, 10,000 leaders in our mask free society, 1 million leaders in our mask free society, in a world where the default for leaders is to live and lead mask free a mask free world yeah i love that Um, i don't know if that last one will happen but i'm gonna die trying yeah
2: i think that's the that's the one man It's the that's the one that is worth uh, leaving a legacy towards love it uh number five this is our fun one uh if you could hop in a delorean go back for five seconds to your past shout one thing to yourself from the driver window when would you go back and what would you say
1: um, am I wearing the cool clothes that Michael J. Fox wore, or do I have to wear less attractive attire?
2: <laughs> no, absolutely. You're wearing exactly that.
1: <laughs> um, I would go back to Michael Brody weight that had just thrown up blood that was on that was in a car that his, his friend Brian was driving him to rehab, and I would tell him that um, he wasn't learning. He wasn't going there to learn how to survive. That he was going there to learn how to thrive.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> we can't yeah. a better no, not, no, than that. Yeah, thank you. Well, this yeah,
2: has been
0: a, this has been a real treat. And again, this is this is what we we want to start the podcast for to have conversation about brilliant business philosophy that you've shared with us. Uh, amazing around creating a culture on um, on critical decision making, that kind of stuff, but also just the human element. Um, and so, mm. Michael, thank you so much for. Uh, the journey you've been on for yourself doing the uncomfortable work, but now uh, making it a gift to, to the rest of us. And I am so excited. I can't believe we almost went through the podcast and weren't <laughs> going to announce what you, what you launched today. Cause we didn't know about it. Um, but you have, you have uh, some new members coming your way from us and hopefully from our podcast. Um, so Michael, thank you so much for being a guest on us, on this podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having a platform like this and for uh, being so aligned. I, I really appreciate it. It was great meeting you. too.
0: Yeah, absolutely yeah. Thanks buddy. Okay friends, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Head to 0to5000.com for exclusive tools to grow your business. That's z e r o t o 5000.com.